Hello, and welcome to the Solutions Insider Podcast. My name is Jody Fleming, president of NCHA Strategic Partners. On today's special two-part episode, we are excited to be joined today by Sherry Cold, President Emeritus of Qualivus, to talk a little bit about the state of healthcare staffing. In part one of the series, we'll look at the staffing pre-pandemic, examine our current state, and then in part two, we'll look to the future of staffing while exploring solutions and ways hospitals and healthcare systems can address the shortages. So Sherry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a while. Um, Haven't seen you. I know we've both been traveling a lot. Before we get into any kind of conversation, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and a little bit of history regarding Qualibus. Hey, good morning, Jody. It's always good to hear your voice. It's always good to see your face, even if it's on a frame. Um, And we've had a lot of that over the last two and a half years, right? Um, So, um, but I'll be seeing you in November. That's right. That's right. So looking forward to that. So a little bit about me. I like to say uh, I'm a, a nurse from little old Sumter, South Carolina. But the reality is I've been a nurse uh, for over 38 years here in South Carolina. I've worked in South Carolina hospitals for over 20 years in some capacity, started as a nurse tech and then became a nursing director at some point along the way. And after I'd worked in this hospital uh, in these multiple nursing roles for uh, 18 years full-time, the South Carolina Hospital Association was awarded a Duke Endowment grant for workforce solutions opportunities to help their members. This was back in 2002. And so you think about that being 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm sure some of what we're going to talk about will be, how are we still here 20 years later? And for me, 38 years later of uh, the workforce shortages, the nursing shortages that we've been experiencing for, honestly, most of my career. But you know, it has been my privilege to to serve as a nurse and to serve um, hospital associations that we work with, um, like NCHA, and just great partnerships with you guys. I'm just thrilled to be a guest on this podcast, and I appreciate you guys having some interest in who we are and what we do. So a little bit more about Qualibus is we are a workforce solutions company. So people automatically think, oh, you're a staffing agency. Well, we're not a staffing agency. We're actually a partner. Um, As a matter of fact, um, most of the associations we work with are are dear friends. So I think that's where healthcare has to remain relevant is through these relationships and through problem solving and through real consultative, creative ways of, of working together. We haven't solved the problems, but certainly think that we have helped. So Qualibus does work with over 240 staffing agencies across the country, and we service thousands of hospitals um, with temporary staff, nurses, clinicians, non-clinical, all types of temporary work they may need um, when they need it through these multiple relationships that we have. Some of those have been around for 20 years. And so we also service 27 state hospital associations to better serve their members when they need um, workforce solutions. We do workforce assessments. We do non-clinical. We do international staffing. And I think that's the beauty in interim leadership, all of these things that have been real struggles uh, throughout the pandemic in particular. Uh, We bring valued, vetted 
partners. We don't try and do it ourselves. It's hard to be perfect at everything you do. I think the, the reality is we want to be able to bring companies that we take the time to truly, in, I'll use the word investigate, but the reality is we really want to take the time to make sure that anyone that we partner with and we put before a member of NCHA has been completely vetted, not only vetted by us, but also continuously um, evaluated through our processes. So I'll, I'll pause there for just a second. Yeah, and I I really appreciate the the background um, because you know you started with what was then the South Carolina Hospital Association staffing program, and then has you know kind of morphed and changed into Qualivis over the years, and you know twenty years like it's easy math, right? I love the easy math. It's really just fascinating to to really understand that. Qualivis has been around in some form or fashion for 20 years. And the the business model that was put forth, you know, it has thrived. Like you said, there's 27 associations that are part of this, this program. And, you know, it keeps growing and growing and growing. And I don't think that at the time, you know, if we're talking about the history yeah, I don't know at the time if we ever thought that, first of all, it would have this program succeeded and last as long as it has, much less been such a an important factor through the course of the COVID pandemic. Nobody had their crystal ball out and nobody saw this coming, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. So prior to the pandemic, and we we you kind of touched on it a little bit. What did really healthcare staffing look like? I, I think we can all say that there was still there was a shortage of some sort, but not to this extent when you talk about the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, what did staffing look like? Yeah. So if we go back to 2002 when Qualivis was first created, you know, it was basically hospitals had a need for someone when they when a nurse went out on FMLA or they were offering a new service line, or they were expanding a program, or they acquired a hospital, or they had a lot of new graduates, right, that may needed uh, more orientation time. So that's kind of how I think um, staffing looked back in the day. You know, hospitals um, had some of their own core staffing challenges, but vacancy rates at hospitals were really fairly low. I think most were below 6%, you know, back in those days. So really, Qualibus was created really to create seamless processes for bringing in these temporary people, right? So it's a different focus than just the shortage itself, right? So that was the real thing was, hey, how do we have flexible contracts for hospitals? Um, how do we make sure that the companies we're working with are um, joint commission certified, right? What are those quality indicators, right? So if you think 20 years ago, that was kind of more of the, the workforce needs, right? And and if you, if you think about, you know, uh, right before the pandemic, however, that was still kind of the practice. There were probably about 100,000 permanent RN jobs out there that we could see through the internet, right? We all know how all that works on Liquid Compass or whatever third-party uh, software you might use. Um, and what happened during the pandemic um, was just unprecedented. And I, I, I hate to even use that word because it's been used so much, but there's no other word that really describes what we've all lived through 
for the last two and a half, uh, going on three years now. And, and I think what happened was the demand became so great. And then we had a lot of clinicians leave the bedside. And honestly, we, we had situations that were dire. And, and so we went from, you know, about 10,000 open travel jobs, 100,000 um, core vacancies, and particularly in nursing, right, to a point highest during the pandemic in 2021, because everyone thought 2020 was horrible. It was. And then 2021 came along and said, um, you know, hold, hold my propel or whatever it is you happen to be drinking. But the reality is, uh, you know, late 2021, we really had no idea that demand would get where it was. So we saw those core vacancies continuing to rise. We have now over 220 open core RN jobs in the country. We're, we're seeing the demand of 2021 for travel nurses in particular was over 50,000. The reality is there aren't 50,000 even travel nurses in, in the industry, right? right. Um, now we've kind of balanced out as we get to this, and I know we'll get to the endemic uh, part of this, but, but the reality is that demand pre-pandemic was rational. It was reasonable. It was well within the capabilities mm-hmm. of all of our partners to fill those jobs in a timely manner um, with great benefit to the hospitals, with wonderful terms and conditions that that worked because hospitals needed those staff when they had certain situations in place. So it was very easy to um, you know, find the nurses through these multiple um, companies that we trusted to fill these jobs in, in six weeks, eight week, 13 week, 26 week uh, assignments. Right. And, and, and so I, I think that that's really beforehand, you know, that was kind of the focus when a hospital needed a nurse because their ICU nurse was out um, having a baby, you mm-hmm. know, congratulations. Right. We, we would, we would find a perfect fit for them, send them over. I mean, we used to send multiple um, candidates over, right. Be- because there were opportunities. And so that's really what it looked like originally um, was just the, the, the opportunity for hospitals to have one place to go. Right. And I think it was, it was, sorry, Sherry, but I think it was even easier because hospitals could take their time, you know, when looking at those candidates that were sent over. Um, Absolutely. Choosier if, you know, if you want to, you know, deem it that way. Yeah. Um, They didn't have to, um, you know, they didn't have to take somebody right off the bat. Whereas no, no, they would take the time. They would take two or three days to do the interview. You know, these yeah. kinds of things uh, pre-pandemic were pretty normal. Yeah. Um, in in the I, industry. I find it really interesting because, you know, we were together um, at a meeting right before, you know, things started to shut down. I mean, like a week before. Um, and this was one of the things that I remember vividly talking to you about was what are we going to do if this this pandemic, if, you know, it comes to the U.S. and how big is it going to be? What's the effect going to be? Um, and again, at that time, we we were like, oh, you know, I remember it was like uh, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. Um, and here we are still like over two years later, um, still in a little bit of this situation with the ebbs and flows of COVID and the numbers, um, 
you know, with rebound COVID, nothing like it was at the very beginning. But, you know, talk a little bit about now that, you know, with being in the pandemic, relatively close to the end, being more of the endemic, it's always going to be here. We know that just like the flu. I just got my fifth, <laughs> uh, like fifth shot yesterday, but talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, how the shortages are looking now um, and, and, you know, what we've, we haven't solved anything. We know that. <laughs> um, but what does it look like right now? And what are some of the things that we've learned with helping hospitals, hospital associations with, you know, building the pipeline with burnout or some folks like to say resilience because we don't like the negative connotation of burnout. Talk a little bit about, about that and what, what we're learning and what we have learned. Happy to do so. You know, I I think one of the lessons um, throughout this pandemic is nurses and and personnel and people working in hospitals are not commodities. Right. I think they always have choices about where they want to work, how they want to work. And I think some of the things that we're seeing now is a much more gig workforce and a workforce that wants much more flexibility. You know, we've been talking about that for years, work-life balance, right? right. We've talked about work-life balance for, you know, for 20 years. The reality is the pandemic really just kind of unfortunately set that on fire. People were forced to either leave their jobs. You remember when when, when hospitals shut down ORs, right? right. And those nurses had, um, that those personnel folks had nowhere to go. You know, most hospitals did a fantastic job in realigning them and reassigning them and teaching them new skills. I think that's another thing that hospitals really are going to continue to do is how can I help my workforce be more able to, to fill jobs that may not be their typical job, right? right. I think uh, having more skills and, and getting um, more folks into our healthcare systems that can actually um, support the clinicians that are at the bedside. You know, we talk about different nursing models, right? I'm a right. nurse. I'm kind of always going to lean that way, guys. I'm sorry. But you think about when, when, I, when I became a nurse, you know, med surge is where all the new little nurses went. Well, it's not, that's just not the way it is anymore. But I think that, and, and we won't go back there because there are so many choices for nurses today, right? Some are going to want to work in the ICU. Some are going to go straight to delivery, delivery, OR, whatever it might be. But I think that the reality is these new folks entering the workforce and even those that are staying now, how are we going to accommodate the 52-year-old nurse? And I'll be honest, that's the average age of an RN in the United States still. 50. That's amazing. 52. Now the, the pandemic numbers may change that a little, but let, let's even say it's 45. Right. right? If, if, if you, th- but, but 52, people are not thinking about necessarily changing their careers so much, but, that, but they want to do something different perhaps. And so I think the things that we're going to see now and that we can talk about for the future as well is how do you not lose the knowledge and the skill of our workers that are in their 50s and 60s, right? Even those in their mid 40s. How do we make our jobs more attractive? What everybody wants to work from home in their pajamas. How do we fight this? You know, I've seen more and more information on virtual nursing. You know, I will tell you, um, I think it was last year I was at AONL and I walked, I, I, I think at least 
every 10th booth, and that's a huge conference, had something about virtual nursing. And um, so uh, most of them were technology-based, right? right. And, and, and so when I think about those kinds of solutions and what the workforce of tomorrow might look like, I really want to sit down and talk to hospitals. I heard a hospital the other day on one of our calls, and the nursing leaders were really excited about this virtual nursing opportunity. It's kind of like if you remember, or if you worked in a hospital back in the um, the, the early 2000s, maybe mid 2000s, I don't know, um, all time stops. Um, but whenever that whenever that was, we we centralized tel- um, telemetry, right? Right, because every unit used to have a, a you know a a, a monitor person that would watch all those um, all those EKGs and 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 the, and the telemetry. Now many hospitals have what they call a central telemetry unit, and doesn't matter where the patient is, they can be on telemetry. I think the future of workforce can be a, a mixture, right? Of kind of bringing back some old things. A lot of hospitals are bringing LPNs back into the acute care setting. A lot of them are looking at you know, um, the nurse on a stick, (laughs) virtual nursing uh, programs. And, you know, again, that's a great way to retain people, right? So I think think the struggle for our our hospitals are are not necessarily each other. There are really other industries that are offering jobs that that can compete with the, 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 the same group of folks. Let's look at the fact that why are we still turning down hundreds of thousands of people into nursing schools. Right. So those are things that we can talk about. How how do we help that in the future? But we're still turning down um, so many folks in nursing schools. How do we solve that problem? We need to figure out how to get more clinical sites and faculty people on board so that we can grow the nursing um, graduates every year. We have people interested in going into healthcare. We also need to help um, hospitals educate um, the public, their communities on the other jobs that are available in hospitals. Not everybody, you look at TV, everybody's a nurse or a doctor. Right. Let's make sure that our um, elementary schools and our, our middle schools have um, a lot of insight and knowledge, guidance counselors. Um, let's make sure that they understand that there are some real opportunities for a lifetime career within our healthcare systems, right? Right. Um, you think about all the different opportunities. So I, I think all of these things are uh, happening now. I think that those kind of discussions are key to helping us move forward into the future. And you know, I I, I certainly say this a little bit selfishly because at some point I'm going to need somebody to probably take care of me. Um, so how do I get? How do I? How do I get there? Right. Um, but but I, I think that. We need to make sure, too, that the people that we are putting into healthcare have not just the, the skill set, but the heart for it. And right. I think when we think about uh, people that are going into these professions, um, like nursing, that leave within five years, right? Mm. How, do we, how, do we, how do we keep the joy alive? Right. Is it uh, allowing them opportunities to grow? Is it shared governance, making sure that that program's up and running well? Is it um, is it is it is there opportunity? Because this is what people are looking for now. They're looking for 
opportunities to continue to grow and and change and evolve right? right it's it's odd to see someone that wants to stay in that same job for the next 30 years right right so you know, there was something that you just said and and I found very interesting you know you talked about the heart do you think that through the pandemic um that that was something that was really lost um you know whether it was just because of the circumstances around covid with so much death you know we never i don't think we ever thought that that covid this virus would lead to such numbers in losing people um whether it was the death of folks your coworkers um the patient you were taking care of or the kind of like the death of somebody's soul that like i can't do this anymore yeah um you know the heart of a nurse do you feel like that got a little lost throughout the pandemic with you know some of the you know, people they just left yeah first of all they left some of them passed away from taking mm-hmm. care of patients and some of them it was like you know, I know this is a controversial thing. Some of them left to go other places to make more money. So yeah, yeah. let's just like, like, yeah, we, elephant yeah, in the we, room. Can't, we can't deny that. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. There were, there were nurses that stayed and, and, you know, um, God bless them. Right. The, the ones that just stayed and did no matter what for their, for their home, for their hospital, for their community, for their family, for their church, for all of those reasons, they right. stayed boy, we need to make sure that those folks get recognized. We need to make sure that they understand the value of what they contributed over the last two and a half years. Great opportunity for hospitals to really, really look at those folks and and reward them in whatever way, right? Right. For those folks, it may not be money, right? It may be other things that you can do for them. Right. Um, you are correct. There were plenty of people that said, well, if I'm going to be working in these conditions anyway, a lack of PPE, um, the support staff aren't even going to be allowed in the room because we're trying to limit exposure. The fact that I've had friends pass away, the fact that they bagged more bodies in two and a half years than they've done in their whole career, right? right. These are just, and and think about it, most nurses and most um, healthcare workers work in their communities. Often the hospital is the largest employer in that community. So they they saw things. It was it was like a battlefield. It was like a war zone. And so what did we do to make sure that they felt um valued? You know, I I, I hear a lot of people they went from um you know heroes to zeros. Right. We've all heard that 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 cliche of you know I was great until I wasn't. Right. And, you know, I was actually visiting a hospital. This was last year. And I was walking around one of the nursing units. And, um, you know, one of the nurses was was uh, just telling me a story that she went into the break room uh, to get a patient a, a Coke. And there weren't any Cokes in there. And so they called down to dietary and they were like, well, you know, we don't want the nurses drinking them. So that's why everything has to be per patient. Right. Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, nurses don't get 
meal breaks. They don't get bathroom breaks. I, I, I don't think a Coke's going to break the budget, but, but these are, these are things that we need to sit down and listen to the clinicians about. Um, you know, those that left for the money, you know, I have mixed emotions right. about that because you think about nurses, they're usually the biggest payroll in that healthcare system. Um, usually more nurses than any other professional, uh, professional group. Um, I don't think hospitals mean to or intend to not pay nurses what they're worth. Mm-hmm. I think that the reality is, and boy, this is gonna, this is either gonna go over bigger or not. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think the real challenge is the reimbursement system that we have for healthcare in the United States. Right. Right. I don't. I don't think hospitals uh, don't want to pay their nurses a, a living wage. I think they've got to figure out how do they do that because when you come to a hospital, you have to have nursing care, right? And typically, they've been part of room and board. So you know, it, this goes beyond talk. Talk about futuristic. This goes well beyond um, what we're going to solve here today. Um, but yeah, so these these mixed emotions I have is. You know, if I had children that um, I was trying to fund a college fund for, if I had a mortgage payment that I wanted to pay off, if I were close to retirement, you know, building that nest egg, you, you know, I, these this opportunity, whether we like it or not, was life changing for many people. Yeah. Now they're not going to travel forever. We found in our research, they typically don't travel more than five assignments. The assignment being about a three month period of time. So where are they going to go after? That's going to be the question. Are they going to come back home? We found most aren't. Um, They left for a reason. So how, how do we get hospitals to work on that? That alumni, right? The ones that left, how do you get them back? And how do you make that attractive for them? Um, but the reality is um, people did leave for multiple reasons. Some people left because they had to take care of sick family members. I mean, COVID was rampant and um, many people are going to continue to have health problems relative uh, to this virus. Um, but I think I, I think the, the, the reality is the workforce of today and tomorrow is going to look very different we have to really work in healthcare on DEI, diversity, inclusion, and equity. It is it is a, a place where if you look at the workers in a hospital system, typically it does not reflect that community. Right. So how do we find people? And we know who stays in the community, right? So I think these are all things that... Um, Maybe pie in the sky ideas. I don't think they are. I think that we can we can reevaluate who gets into healthcare. Why do they get into healthcare? I think that's ultimately it. We have to figure out the why, not the what. The right. Why. Right. I, I don't know that I answered your question. No, no, you did, and I, I think that you know you that there is a lot of we've got to ask the question why. I think uh, you know I read a book. It's called Why. And so asking the question, you've got to ask at least five or six times before you actually get to the true, like that underlying answer as to why, why people do what they do. Why do we make this decision? And and I think, you know, post pandemic, you know, that's, that's what all of our hospitals and healthcare providers 
are going to have to ask is, you know, why? And then why do we need to change? Why do we need to do something different? If we don't do something different, then we're going to continue to be in the same kind of um, hamster wheel, be on that hamster wheel. And and we need to look at what will the post-pandemic staffing model truly look like? Will it be a 50-50 split between you've got travelers and you've got your core staff? Will it be travelers, core staff, international that then become part of your core staff? You know, what what and what's that model going to look like? Right. And, and how do we utilize all of those people that are going back for higher education, right? You know, back in my day, no one thought about becoming a nurse practitioner until you had five or 10 years of experience because you wouldn't be worthy. Right. But the reality is the folks now that are exiting um, our BSN programs are immediately going into ICUs so that they can become CRNAs or nurse practitioners. And and yet hospitals don't really have places for nurse practitioners, right? Maybe they're the nurses on the stick. I don't know. But I think because most people go into nursing care for patient care. Right. So, you you know, how how do we make patient care? uh, You're probably going to edit this out, Alex, but how do we make nursing care at the bedside sexy again? How do we do that? And so we've got to figure that out and we've got to figure it, figure it out pretty quickly right. um, because the, 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 the gap between the core jobs and, and the amount of travelers that can be committed continues to get bigger. Right. And, you know, during the pandemic, it was relative to hospitalizations due to COVID for a large part of it. But what we've seen now is um, our hospital censuses are tapped out. More people are coming into the hospital now than ever before. So the average daily census is up. Um, When you're waiting in the ER and you can't get a bed, it's probably not because there's not a physical bed. It's probably because there's not a staffed bed. Right. Right. So we have to realize those differences. But um, I think the the new models are, I think they're going to be a blend of old and new, right? We we talked about, you know, LPNs coming back into the system more support roles. How do we get more PCTs, phlebotomists, you know, those kinds of roles of people. And let me tell you, if you can work on getting some of those support roles filled, then you can, it helps you with your diversity, quite honestly. It also helps you fill your own pipeline, right? So a lot of folks that that come in as a phlebotomist or a PCT or a CNA or one of those roles, grow your own. Because, you know, but, but how do we get them into the schools? Right. Right. Because it, you know, it's, so it's, it's going to be a balancing act. We've got to start engaging more with the universities and the technical colleges on how do we increase capacity, but also how do we choose the right folks that aren't going to leave the profession in a year? We don't have crystal balls, but how do we fall, find out that that's going to be a person that we think is going to want to remain at, at, at the bedside, right? We, 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 we don't see the, um, the shortage in, you know, typically like case management jobs or things like that. It's, it's really the bedside nurse. That's really the vacancy that's, that's um, most severe, in my opinion. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part healthcare staffing series. Join us for the next episode as we look at the future of staffing while exploring a few possible solutions 
and ways to address staffing shortages.